Welcome to another edition of the Earning Hope podcast. News cycle covering the elections 2020. This is David, your host. Today we're going to cover how the Democratic Party doesn't actually need to win in a landslide in this election. All they need to actually do to get Donald Trump out of office is create a even tie 269 to 269 electoral system and then they can use the contingency plan in place for those events to nominate a democratic president and a vice president from the republican party most likely through the senate these are going to be new facts for some people about voting machines and how they can be defrauded these are the reasons why they are so adamant about getting voting machines in various places onto the bill instead of Democratic caucuses, because when people come and poll in person, they have to depend on old methods like straw polling, and they have to have a person in the room, and if there's a person in the room, there's a potential that somebody can audit the election, and you can catch them in the act of stealing an election, which is how we know that the 2016 nomination was stolen from Bernie Sanders, and that's on the record. At the DNC, when they claimed that there was Russian hacking at the DNC that caused emails to be released, a group of independent investigators called uh, Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, with a, a fellow named Ray McGovern and a number of other retired people from the FBI, CIA, NSA, did their own investigative report and discovered that, in fact, the information was leaked from the DNC. So it was an internal source that released the emails from the Democratic National Convention, not a hacking effort that was done on them, which sounds like an inside job, which means that it also could have been purposely done to create a misinformation campaign. The Russian collusion scandal has now been debunked, and there's been congressional hearings and all these different things going on, And the reason that they did this is because they needed a record turnout so that they could shift the election, not to be a landslide victory for their candidate, but so that they could get it to be a tie. This is algebra. If if you're not good with the Common Core math, you're not going to be able to figure this out normally. This is why they emphasize this stuff, because they think that most Americans aren't good enough at math to see bullshit right on the surface when they see it. So we're going to cover what's going on with uh, voting machines first, and then we'll get into uh, how far back it goes that the current president was stating that I'm pretty sure that they rigged the system during the election, even right after the 2016 election when he won, and how Obama's sitting there on stage saying that I've never heard somebody complain about the voting system being rigged when they won, and that's what they do. This is misinformation. It's a misinformation campaign. It's using the internal apparatus of the government to actually steal an election by creating the impression that, what do you mean, you won, there's no problem, and then coming back in the next election and using all the means and methods that they have studied since before the 2016 election at hackathons and things like that, and things that have been done on the record since 20, back as far as 2014 and, and farther back, hacking voting machines. Some voting machines are so easily hacked that all you have to do is put a little pencil mark up in the upper right-hand corner and it will miscount the vote uh, or discount the vote entirely. 
That's how easy it is to hack certain counting machines and certain voting machines. Others can be tampered with in ways like memory cards and different things like that. So if they can leak Russian propaganda that they paid for, and then now that's been they've been busted doing that, they could most certainly board up the windows at a counting location and have an army of trained voting counters in simple measures that they've studied for years in how to rig the voting machine to, again, not make the vote a landslide, but to just shift the vote in key states in order to make it a dead tie. In which, in, in that instance, the people who have been paid millions and billions of dollars in some cases by lobbyists can shift the vote to their preferred candidate for president and vice president. I'm also going to have in this talk here uh, a Princeton study uh, in one of the hackers' talks talking about how voting uh, has been hacked in America for years and how it's extremely undemocratic for our republic, and how Princeton and Harvard did a study that proved that in this system of government, the bottom half of society does not actually get a say in any policy decisions or voting. That only happens when the top 400 families in America in earnings decide that they want something and all agree upon it. In which case, there's a 100% chance that will pass. In any other instance, America doesn't actually get a say. So, no matter what your choice, Biden or Trump, if you b live below a certain level, if you don't file a million dollars a year on your taxes, you most likely didn't actually get a say in this election. So this is the most crucial takeaway from the 2020 election, is that our voting system is completely rigged. And at the end, I'll cover how some of the new proposals for voting can also be rigged using simple mathematics and investing in non-governmental organizations and political strategy groups through opposition research to steal the, new, the newer proposed models like they've done in New York City. And it's one of those things where we need something that's actually simpler, not more complicated. Let's get started. Here's Jimmy Dore covering the perceived problem with Democratic voters according to paid-off Democratic establishment. Ladies and gentlemen, let's, let's talk about the, the big show. So Biden and Trump are locked in a tight race as uncounted votes remain. That Joe Biden, that's the guy most likely to beat Trump. Remember that? Remember that was the big thing? There is, it's a, by the way, it's a huge turnout. Highest voter turnout since 1900, which usually favors the Democrats. The higher the turnout usually favors the Democrats. Yet somehow, wow, this, uh, look, at the, look at how high it is. So when, the, when you get the highest voter turnout, that's supposed to favor the Democrats, unless the Democrats somehow manage to get even shittier. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised. I, I thought after this election, I bet next time the Democrats just run an actual corpse <laughs> just to see. <laughs> Vote for the corpse. Don't you see how bad the Republican is? There's a corpse, but he's not going to hurt you. He's a corpse. He's, he's got dignity and character. Get, get, get this, Matt Brunning uh, tweeted this out. He says, according to the exit poll, Trump did better in 2020 with every race and gender except white men. What? So 
the, the change from 2016, he got less votes from white men, Donald Trump. He got more votes from white women. He got more votes from black men. He got more votes from black women. He got more votes from Latino men. He got more votes from Latino women and more votes from uh, all the others. Holy crap. So that's what happens when you do four years of Russiagate. So if you do four years of a phony opposition to jo Donald Trump, you actually lose voters. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Wow. Here's uh, Michael Cohen says, I know a lot of Democrats are going to blame the National Party for what's happened tonight. But it's not as... But it's not as if Americans don't know who Trump is. Maybe the problem isn't Democrats. It's the voters. <gasps> These goddamn voters, they keep letting the Democratic Party down. <laughs> the voters just aren't good enough for, for the Democratic Party. That's the problem. They're just, the voters just aren't worthy of a political party that is offering them nothing. Voting Democrat is a privilege. You're not even worth their platitudes. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there it is. And who, who? Joe didn't let us down. We let Joe down. Ah. Mm. <laughs> the Democrats are bound to get better if you shield them from any responsibility whatsoever. That's how life works. So it's definitely don't do an autopsy. Don't look inward, Democrats. It's, look outward. It's always someone else's fault. In 2016, it was Susan's very powerful people like Jill Stein and Susan Sarandon and the Russians. And now it's just the Democrats themselves, the voters. That's the, that, it's not the Democratic Party. That's not for believe me. And who, who would write? Who, why do I even f feature a guy like this? Because this is who he is. This is a guy. He's a columnist for the Boston Globe. Of course. He's also an author. He also has a newsletter. Who wouldn't want to sign up for this guy's newsletter? With that kind of insight? He wrote this book called Clear and Present Safety. The world has never been better and why that matters to Americans. Hey, everything's fine. The Democrats have got you. The view's fine from brunch over here. The world has never been better and why that matters to America. The world has never been better, according to Michael Cohen, the guy who says that's the it's the voters who are at fault. <laughs> the world has never been better and why that matters to Americans. Wow. This guy's like a, if a trust fund had opinions. <laughs> I'm going to I'm just going to I'm going to make a bold statement here. Nobody making less than a quarter million dollars a year would find this guy interesting. <laughs> a candidate doesn't support anything and the voters won't vote for him it's their fault <laughs> well i think what this guy's i think what he's actually saying what he's actually saying michael cohen the guy who writes for the boston globe and the author of that shitty book I think what this guy is saying is that we should just expect our elected officials to do the opposite of what we want. 
It's like, don't these Democrats know the, their elected officials are going to do the opposite of what they want? What's their problem? That's how his brain works. That got 2,000 likes. So 2,000 people who follow him think exactly the same. Wow. Okay. Hey, by the way, and there it is. The Democrats don't need to change. The voters do. Mm-hmm. And let's remember, Joe Biden could have offered 72% of the country, according to Fox News, is in favor of Medicare for all, government-run health care. 72%, over 7 out of 10 people. Maybe if he would have offered that. He didn't even have to do it. He just had to offer it. That's how corrupt they are. That's how under the thumb they are of their donor class. Joe Biden couldn't even pretend to be for health care for you. They wouldn't even allow that. He, he could have won handily. Trump could have also, by the way. Trump could have also. Hey, 87% of Democrats support Medicare for all, though Joe Biden doesn't. Literally, they're going to run a corpse next time. If Joe Biden dies while in office, they will run him again. And they're going to learn all the wrong lessons from this. If they win, it looks like they're going to win this. They're going to do nothing all year and blame it on the Mitch McConnell's Republicans in the Senate. Hey, Biden's opposition to marijuana legalization is at odds with most Americans' views. I wonder why it was such a close race. Biden says he's supporting additional funding for the police. After a whole summer, after a whole summer of protests and riots against police brutality, the Democrats chose, chose, the Democrats coalesced behind Barack Obama leadership and chose Joe Biden, the author of the 94 crime bill, to be their nominee. The one who exploded the prison population with black and brown people and says he's going to get additional funding to the police. And you wonder why he lost black people's votes. Oh, but he also wrote the crime bill, which gave us mass incarceration, more prisons, longer sentencing, escalated the war on drugs and targeted African-Americans. The loss of many black and Latino voters to Donald Trump would be pretty stunning repudiation of everything the Democratic Party establishment has claimed that it stands for since 2015. Yes, it is. It is a pretty stunning repudiation of everything the Democratic Party establishment has claimed that it stands for. After the there it is. I just told what I just told you. I didn't know I should have known this was coming up. Hey, Biden campaign doesn't consider Latinos part of their path to victory, political operatives say. This is real. Now you know why? I mean, the fact that this guy's still going to win after this. Oh, my God. If he was running against Bozo the Clown, it would be this close. That's how bad Joe Biden is. So here's a narrative. Black people in the Midwest and South showed out while Latinos in the South and Mid-Atlantic voted for asshole and the white working class once again went with their racist God King. Wonder who the Dems should listen to. Wow, I don't know who this person is, Ellie Mistel. Could you look her up on Twitter and see what her bio says who she is? Yep. At Ellie NYC. At Ellie. One L. E-L-I-E NYC. Let's see what, what her... So she's she's there saying that black people uh, did their job, but the but the Hispanics and the white working class they're the they're the assholes. I it might be Eli, justice yeah. correspondent at the Nation. Oh, okay, justice correspondent at the Nation. This is amazing. 
So you see what what this person's doing? Well, Dave Anthony says the solution is to pit races against each other, I guess. Solid take. That's what sounds like what he's, <laughs> Eli's doing there. Pitting the races against each other. Eli works at The Nation. I'm going to guess he's also a Russia gator, so he's also probably a xenophobe against Russia. I'm just guessing. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, great take, Eli. Let's let's pit the races against each other. That's a great take. <laughs> let's not make the Democrats actually appeal to those people. Let's make those races of people into bad people. You freaking moron. I asked Biden about Obama-era deportations. He told me to vote for Trump. Uh. Biden says if you're black and you don't vote for him, you're not black. He's right. Jesus. Biden says Americans who believe Tara Reid's assault allegations probably shouldn't vote for me. He's telling a lot of people not to vote for him. Biden Americans who think they're better off today probably shouldn't vote for me. Joe Biden's strategy of a strategy of appealing to Republicans is courting disaster. So they did it again. They didn't go after the disaffected working class people. They didn't go after progressives. They didn't go after environmentalists. They went after Republicans who didn't like Trump again. Turns out there were no Biden Republicans. The whole drift to the right strategy was 100% failure. GOP voters went more strongly for Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. So the Democrats would have did better had they not even campaigned, which Joe Biden didn't. And when he did campaign, he told people to vote for Trump. And Trump did better with Republicans. There's no Republicans peeling off from Trump. your Lincoln project. So this was 100% predicted that they would not get any Trump, they would not get any Republican voters to vote for Joe Biden. This was 100% predicted, and yet they did it again anyway. But keep in mind that the Democrats would much rather lose while trying to get Republican votes than win while trying to get progressive votes. Democrats are not an opposition party, you guys. They're not. I don't care if Cori Bush just got elected and fucking uh, Jamal Bauman and the squad. And they're there there to fake you out. Progressives inside the Democratic Party are there to fuck you up and fake you out. They're not there to help you. Bernie Sanders' secret to to attracting Latino support, talking to them. (laughs) Oh, in Espanol, dígame. Democratic leaders willing to risk party damage to stop Bernie Sanders. So this this whole segment was going to be if Joe Biden lost and who we were supposed to blame. And it was supposed to be the Democrats and Joe Biden. (laughs) But this is just who to blame for being this close. Democratic leaders willing to risk party. Interview with dozens of Democratic Party officials, including 93 superdelegates, found overwhelming opposition to handing Mr. Sanders the nomination. This guy.
see that in for, that you see that enthusiasm for Joe Biden all the time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe when an organization cheats a guy filling up stadiums twice and ran a candidate with so many skeletons in his closet he can decorate the whole neighborhood for Halloween, their first priority isn't winning. <laughs> I heard on ABC. I heard an ABC analyst say that the problem is Democrats have moved too far left, and I swear to God, we're going to have two fascist parties when this is over. Wow, seventy-two percent of the Americans want government-run health care. Florida voted for a fifteen-dollar minimum wage. South Dakota, Arizona, and New Jersey just voted to legalize pot. Colorado voted for twelve weeks of paid family and medical leave. Wow. It turns out a progressive agenda is what the American people want. But yeah, blame socialism is pathetic. And finally, from Bertolt Brecht, some party hack decreed that the people had lost the government's confidence and could only regain it with redoubled effort. If that is the case, would it not be simpler if the government simply dissolved the people and elected another? Okay. Wow, is it going to get shitty? It's going to get way worse. People are going to be start going to start being kicked out of their houses. And Joe Biden ain't going to do a fucking thing to help them. There ain't there's no more space underneath bridges in in Los Angeles. It's all taken. They now have city crews that go by and service homeless camps under bridges. What do you mean? Well, they give them porta potties. They empty them. They clean them. They get all the garbage out. They clean. They they hose down the street and the sidewalk. They take all the trash away. The government is doing this for homeless people, which is better than not doing anything. Why don't we just give them fucking homes already? We just gave five trillion dollars away. You don't think we have a couple of billion dollars for the homeless in America? We do. Here's Lindsey Graham's introduction to the FBI collusion and scandal that was used against the President of the United States of America. Uh, would it be okay if they raised their hands? Is that all right? If they're okay with it, I'm okay with it. Uh, thank you all. I, I, you have labored hard and your work product is impressive. And I just want to thank you all for what you've done for the country. And, uh, Mr. Horowitz, I'm dying to hear from you, but <clears throat> I bet I haven't made 20 minutes of opening statements in a year. But I'm going to take a little bit longer uh, to try to lay out what I think is before us as a nation. Uh, Crossfire Hurricane was probably the best name ever given to an investigation in the history of investigations, because I think that's what we wound up with, a crossfire and a hurricane. Uh, there's been a lot of media reports about your report before it was issued. And I remember reading all these headlines, uh, lawful investigation with a few irregularities. Everything, <clears throat> okay, low-level people kind of got off track. If that's what you get out of this report, you clearly didn't read it. If that's your takeaway, that this thing was lawfully predicated, and that's the main point, you missed the entire report. How do you get a headline like that? That's what you want it to be. You want it to be that and nothing more. 
And I can assure you, if this had been a Democratic president going through what President Trump had gone through, that would not have been the headline. The headline would be, the FBI takes law into its own hands. Biased agents cut corners, lie to court, ignore exoneration. So the first thing I want you to know is how the cake is baked here. And my goal is to make sure that people, when this is over, whether you like Trump, hate Trump, don't care about Trump, you look at this as more than a few irregularities. Because if this becomes a few irregularities in America, then God help us all. Now, the people that were in charge in this investigation were handpicked by Mr. McCabe, who is now CNN analyst, high up in the FBI, the number two guy. The first question I will ask in a bit, is this the best of the best? Are these people normal representatives of the Department of Justice and the FBI? I hope you will say no, because I believe it to be no. And if I believed otherwise, I would be incredibly depressed. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to assume something for the sake of argument. That there was a lawful predicate to open up a counterintelligence investigation. And I want you to know the standard to open one up is about like that. And I also want you to know a counterintelligence investigation is not a criminal investigation. They're not trying to solve a crime. They're trying to stop foreign powers from interfering in America. That a counterintelligence investigation is designed to protect Americans from foreign influence. I want the American people to know there was an effort to affect Hillary Clinton's campaign by foreign actors. The FBI picked up that effort. They briefed her about it and they were able to stop it. We will be receiving a defensive briefing tomorrow as a committee from the FBI to tell us all about what we should be watching for. And they may be some specific threats against us. I don't know. But I know they're going to brief us to protect us, not to surveil us. And here's what I want every American to know. From the time they opened up Crossfire Hurricane till this debacle was over, they never made any effort to brief Donald Trump about suspected problems within his campaign. They had one briefing talking about, you know, the Russians are out there, you better, you better beware. Nothing about Carter Page, nothing about Papadopoulos, nothing about the other people that they thought might be working with the Russians. Why did they not tell him that? I hope you can give us an answer. Bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, a counterintelligence investigation is a good thing until it becomes a bad thing. Because it doesn't take much to open one. And the worst thing can happen is for people to open one up whose real purpose is not to protect an American, but to surveil them. 
Senator Feinstein found herself in a situation all of us may one day find ourselves in. A longtime employee was suspected of having ties to a foreign government. They informed her and she took appropriate action. How easy would it be for somebody to come in our campaigns as a volunteer? We really don't know who they are. You just appreciate any help you can get. How easy would it be for all of us to get caught up in this scenario? Here's Jimmy Dorrit again with the update on where the Steele dossier comes from as far as modern news coverage is considered uh, accurate reporting. And in a moment, we're going to cover Dan Bongino uh, and his story about where the dossier came from that he covers in one of his books. So I just want to remind everybody... So whenever the establishment wants to push a lie or propaganda, they just do it. So like here, this is from Josh Rogan. He's a big uh, propaganda pusher at NBC and CNN. Uh, He says exclusive secret CIA assessment, Putin probably directing influence operation to denigrate Biden. What does Josh Rogan work? He works for the Washington Post and CNN. I think that's where he works. Exclusive secret CIA assessment. Secret. Exclusive. This is all exclusive, secret. Oh, yeah, there it is. Here it is, Washington Post. That's where he works. Secret. Exclusive. Secret. What is that exclusive secret? You want to know what it is? Putin probably <laughs> directing influence operations. <laughs> probably. How do you know? Ah. So they don't have. So you know what they say probably? That's because they don't have evidence. And so that's just an evidence-free conspiracy theory that Josh Rogan from the Washington Post is printing and pushing on social media. They'll never, ever stop that. By the way, and when something's true about the establishment and they don't want you to know about it, this is what they do. So this is also from the Washington Post. The Hunter Biden emails, 100% true. This is what they say. We must treat the Hunter Biden leaks as if they were a foreign intelligence operation, even if they probably aren't. So this probably... There they print it, but even if it probably that ah, fuck it, don't print it. So do you see? So do you see how the newspaper isn't printing the news? They're printing propaganda on purpose. Some of the news they want you to know, some of it they don't. Uh, do you remember the Steele dossier? Why do I bring this up? Because the Steele dossier. You remember that? You heard about that for three years. Well, remember they this? were involved with that fraud of the the fake dossier, the phony dossier. So there's Trump in November of 2018 telling you the dossier is phony. Because guess what? It was phony. Guess who figured that out? Jimmy Dore, pothead in his garage, figured that out three years ago. I figured out where it came from. Guess who didn't? That's MSNBC's host. George Bush's former press secretary is now a host on MSNBC with Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow. Someone from the Bush administration has their own (laughs) show. And this is what she said about the Steele dossier. Maybe dirty, but it ain't fake. That's the president's line, though, on the infamous dossier. But how much longer will he keep saying that? Well, the dossier on its face is still considered an unverified document compiled by British intelligence officer Christopher Steele based on raw intelligence. To date, none of it has been disproven. And whole big parts of it are holding up a special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. No, it's been disproven and none of it's holding up. Here she goes. Nicole Wallace quips Putin must have lots of P tapes for the GOP to push the Kremlin. That's from 2019. MSNBC loves her so much, Jimmy. They now 
have given her a two-hour show. A two-hour show? Two hours. There she is. This is in 2019. That's from December 2019. That's from last December. <laughs> She's still saying this. Nicole Wallace quips, Putin must have lots of P-tapes for the GOP to push the Kremlin line. The MSNBC host responded to conservative commentator Charlie Sykes, who says he's mystified by Republican lawmakers parroting Russian propaganda. Hey, stop repeating conspiracies, said the person who's speculating about a P-tape. <laughs> She's literally talking about a P-tape. Of the president that doesn't exist. Do you see who these people are? She lies for, for torturers and war criminals. And now she lies against them. Whoever's paying her salary is what she'll do. Hey, Nicole Wallace says Mueller had some significant breakthroughs. Idea of Trump in jail, not incomprehensible. You know, his significant breakthrough should have been, I'm wasting everybody's time. But where did the Steele dossier actually come from, Nicole Wallace and every asshole who pushed this? Well, it turns out, I love this. So the, Senate, so the Steele dossier that kicked off four years of Russiagate hysteria among the U.S. ruling class was cooked up by two Russian alcoholics from Perm. Gogliask does not begin to describe the grotesque credulity and stupidity of the American elites. I don't know that word, Gogoliesque. That's nice, though. Russian in Cyprus was behind key parts of discredited dossier on Trump. <laughs> Russian in Cyprus. A Wall Street Journal investigation points to the identity of source number three as a disgruntled PR executive with a vast network of sources. In the nearly four years since they were published, many of the unverified allegations about President Trump compiled by former British spy Christopher Steele have been widely discredited, including by special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of the Russian meddling in the 2016 U.S. election. Yet the source of some of the most critical allegations in that dossier and how they reached Mr. Steele have remained a mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so far the only... The only theory anybody can come up with is cocaine is a hell of a drug. And by the way, once you see that in nearly four years after they were published, many of the unverified allegations about President Trump compiled by Br Br Christopher Steele have been widely discredited, including, the, including by special counsel Robert Mueller. They discredited the Steele dossier, yet everybody at MSNBC still has their job. And here she is, 2019, still pushing that. That's been discredited by the Mueller report. That's been discredited by everybody. She's still doing it. December 2019. Okay. A Wall Street Journal investigation provides the answer. Uh, 40, where, where this came from? Where did the Steele dossier information come from? It came from a 40-year-old Russian public relations executive named Olga Galgunka. The Fed notes to a friend and former schoolmate who worked for Mr. Steele. According to law enforcement records, declassified documents, and former top U.S. national security officials. That's according to all those people. A Wall Street Journal investigation provides the answer. A 40-year-old Russian public relations executive named Olga Galinka fed notes to a friend 
and former schoolmate who worked for Mr. Steele. What did those notes say, you think? One note said, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> While contributing to the dossier, Ms. Galinka was in a messy dispute with her employer. I think you want to pronounce it Galkina. Galkina, okay. While contributing to the dossier, Ms. Galkina was in a messy dispute with her employer, Webzilla's parent company. According to a company statement, Miss Galkina was chronically showing up late for work, sometimes appearing drunk. That seems to be a theme here with this Russiagate thing. Hey, we've got a bombshell information, but, 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 we're, but we're hammered. <laughs> the manager told police that Ms. Galkina had told him he would face deep trouble, including possible death unless he paid ten, well, $11,740 in compensation. That's kind of a random number, isn't it? How much is your life worth to you? Well, it better be at least $11,740. <laughs> In November 2016, Ms. Galkina was fired. Weeks later, she implicated Webzilla in the hacking. We, so just so, so there you go. That's where it came from. An alcoholic PR person in, the, in Russia fed notes to some guy who gave it to Christopher Steele, who then gave it to the Washington Post, uh, uh, Daily Beast, MSNBC, CNN, New York Times, and they all ran with it. And they all ran with it. Just remember what, they, what they're saying now about Hunter Biden's accurate information. So that was all garbage, and they printed it for four years. Hunter Biden accurate information, they say that they have to treat it like it's a foreign intelligence operation, even if they know it isn't. Here he is completely, hey, exclusive, secret CIA, secret. We have a secret CIA thing. Secret? You mean some CIA guy fed you some shit, Josh? Yes, Josh Rogan. You CIA repeater of talking points. Citing two unnamed sources who reviewed the assessment, the Washington Post reported, we assess that President Vladimir Putin and the senior most Russian officials are aware of and probably directing Russia's influence operations aimed at denigrating the former U.S. vice president and fueling public discord ahead of the U.S. election in November. <laughs> That's what they say. Two unnamed sources, they're probably... The unknown sources won't even say they definitely know. They just probably. Print it. Print it. But what if it's real? We, we have to pretend it's not, even if, even if we know it is. We have to pretend that it's Russian disinformation, even though we know it isn't. That's your news media. Now you know why I have this show. Now you know why this show is popular. And now you know why they're going to shut it down soon. <laughs> because this is how they want you to do the news. This is how they want. This is called the news. And most people in journalism are worthless. There's a handful of people who are worth something. But most people that are in journalism are actually worthless. I've been around them. Look at the read the paper. Look at the turn on the news. How do those people work at Rachel Maddow? Every single one of them. A producer, a director, a colorist. Hey, I'm helping color propaganda. And here's the rest of the story on Russiagate from Dan Bongino. Here's how this whole thing starts against Donald Trump. 
During the election, the Obama administration, which had done whatever it wants because the media is complete, the media is lost in this country, folks. Total, there's no media. Uh, forget it. That, 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 that's dead and buried. The media is done. They don't do journalism anymore. It's activism, nothing more, right? The Obama administration had grown comfortable with the idea of weaponizing government against their political enemies, and it happened over and over again. We had the IRS scandal, we had the AP phone record scandal, the Jim Rosen Fox News scandal, and I ask you this, what happened to any of the people involved? Anyone? Yeah, the answer is nothing. I, I, I have to do zeros like this now. Because I used to do zeros like this, but I found out through the liberal media that somehow this means like a white power symbol now or something. I thought it meant okay or zero, but the media says, uh, no, I'm serious, like these idiots in the media will tell you. So now I do zeros like that because I'm like afraid of some media idiot. Uh, these people are crazy. The Obama administration had gotten completely comfortable with the idea of abusing government for their political means. So what happens? They, they, this plan gets hatched, and I'm going to be candid with you. Where exactly it's hatched, nobody's yet sure of to this day. Matter of fact, if you're familiar with my commentary on Fox, I say often one of the great mysteries of this case is what's paragraph one. Paragraph one, what do I mean by that? When I was a federal agent, when you arrest someone, you have to do what's called an MR, a memorandum report. Paragraph one of that MR is always how the case started. I got a call from Jane Doe, bank fraud investigator, said this credit card number was stolen on April 14, 2015. I made a few calls, and the next thing you know, it's an 80-page report about this massive scheme. Paragraph one, though, always lays it out. Always. Do you know to this day we still have no idea what paragraph one, the why they started to spy on the Trump team was? Now, I get it. It was for political. I get that. Now, I get it. It was for political. I get that. But at some point, somebody, you have to understand, folks, how to put down on paper a semi-legitimate reason to start the most massive spying operation in a political campaign in U.S. history. Do you know nobody to this day will tell you what that is? I know what it is. So part, the first plan they do to hit the Trump team, folks, is they learn to manipulate these, these uh, about queries in the, in the NSA database. The NSA has a database of a whole boatload of information, metadata, texts, that kind of stuff. How it works is too complicated in the time I have. But what you can do is you can query that NSA system and you can get a whole lot of information. But what happens? About This is plan A. This is how they're going to get the information. If I'm not following, please stop me, because this is important. The Obama administration figures out that through unmasking, in other words, wiretapping people, pretending they're targeting foreigners, and then querying information in this database, that they can get all the political operation, opposition research in the world that they need against the Trump team. It's beautiful. No one's going to call them out. The media's on their side, right? But there's a good guy in this. There's a white hat. Somebody in the government sniffs this thing out. That's why I tell you, this wasn't plan A. This was the plan. They were going to unmask people, wiretap people, and they were going to query this NSA database and get all the information they needed about the Trump team. But somebody smells a, smells a problem. And he's not having it. And he's the white hat. He's the good guy in this story. And it's Mike Rogers of the NSA. Mike Rogers of the NSA senses that there's something wrong about these about queries. In other words, who's tapping into the database here and making political queries? Now, folks, some of you, I, I don't know what your politics, I assume most of you are conservative, libertarian, or Republican, but that's fine either way. If you doubt any of what I'm telling you, just Google 
the FISA Intelligence Surveillance Court their report on about queries. Because Mike Rogers goes to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and says, Houston, we got a problem. These queries are supposed to follow very specific guidelines about terrorism and, and, and all these metrics. After, you can't just spy on Americans in the database. The FISA court looks into it, comes back with a report that was released in March of 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, that is devastating. If you haven't read it, you were do, read it, you are doing yourself a great disservice. Page 80 specifically is horrifying. Apparently, the NSA database was being queried by private contractors working with the FBI. These were not even government officials. People within the government were using private contractors to query information they had no, no judicial or legal authority whatsoever to look at. Roger smells a rat. People panic in the government. Now, conveniently, what happens right after the election? I'm going to put these pieces together and things will start to make sense. Donald Trump's elected. He's the president-elect, right? Ten days after the election, Rogers, who knows this has been going on the whole time, these unmaskings, the tapping of the... Now does the Donald Trump tweet, they tap Trump Tower. Now does it make sense? He got the wording wrong. He didn't understand exactly how it worked, but the idea was not wrong. Donald Trump's not stupid, trust me. Guy got elected president, earned a billion dollars. By the way, I love how these journalists criticize him. Journalists, the guy's making $25,000 a year writing clickbait pieces for BuzzFeed. They're like, Donald Trump's an idiot. The hard pass, brother. Like, well, the, the guy just won the president. He runs for office the first time and he becomes the president. But we're, yeah, yeah, let me listen to Joey Bag of Donuts at BuzzFeed. You're right, you've got this. It's like, so, so about 10 days after the election, Donald Trump, someone goes up to visit Donald Trump at Trump Tower. <laughs> Who visits him? Mike Rogers. But Rogers doesn't tell anyone. This is going to trip you out totally. He doesn't tell anybody in the White House he's going up there. He visits Trump in Trump Tower conveniently 10 days after the election, which from my experience in the Secret Service is just enough time for them to go up to Trump Tower, WACA, the White House Communications Agency for the president-elect, and set up a skiff where they can talk privately, a sensitive compartmentalized information facility. In other words, a place where no one can listen in. Rogers gives it about 10 days, goes up there has this big meeting with Donald Trump, and what happens the very next day? Donald Trump evacuates Trump Tower and goes to Bedminster, New Jersey to never return for another meeting. You think that was a dink? Like he did that by accident? Oh, let's just go up to Bedminster. I got nothing else to do. Now, again, this is all in the book in intricate detail. The greatest spy story ever told, except the fact that it actually happened, and it happened against you. Rogers has this meeting, Trump evacuates Trump Tower. The very next day, the Obama administration comes out and calls for somebody to be fired. Who's that somebody? Mike Rogers. And they start blaming it on things like drone strikes and other stuff. Like, really? Could you be any more obvious? The Obama administration knows Rogers is the good guy and fills Trump in on this entire debacle. He probably goes up there and says, brother, they're spying on you, like right now. He doesn't know. But now he does. So he leaves. All of a sudden, people start resigning from the federal government after that. You know who also resigns? Bob Hannigan. Now, who's Bob Hannigan? 
Bob Hannigan is the head of the uh, GCHQ, which is the British NSA. Well, why do you think the head of the British NSA would resign right after that Rogers meeting, right after Trump finds out about this massive spying operation? I'm going to tell you why right now. I'm not taking a selfie of you. I'm not taking a selfie of myself. I'm going to read to you a headline. This is from CNN. See it right there. I didn't Photoshop this. April 14th, 2017. Remember who Bob Hannigan is. He's the head of the British NSA. British intelligence passed Trump Associates communications with Russians onto U.S. counterparts. You think I'm making this up? That's CNN. I didn't write it. They wrote that. So not only is the United States government in plan A weaponizing its intelligence community to listen in and computer search the Trump team to hurt them during the campaign for political oppo, they're working with the British and the Australians to pass information about the Trump team onto the Obama administration. Don't take it from me. Take it from CNN. They find out about this. Now, this thing breaks down about halfway through. They move on to plan B. Sorry, there's a lot more to plan A, but I, I, in the interest of time, I want to get through this because the cleanup operation is important. They move on to plan B. What's plan B? They realize Rogers is on to them. They're like, hey, folks, we better ease up on the unmasking and the tapping into the database. People are getting caught. This is probably not good. We're leaving a massive paper trail. And what if we lose, right? They move on to plan B. Plan B is crossfire hurricane. They say, well, listen, if we can't spy on them illegally, let's just spy on them legally. We have this beautiful thing called the FISA court, where we can walk into the FISA court, we can get a warrant on somebody, and when you get a warrant on somebody in the Trump team, they have this beautiful thing for the Obama administration called the two-hop rule. Well, it's for everyone, that's for Obama. Meaning, if I spy on you, and you're a member of the Trump team, I can hop to everybody you emailed, and then everybody they emailed. So basically, all I need to do is get a FISA warrant on the guy cleaning the floors in Trump Tower, and I've got everyone. Because if he emailed his boss and his boss emailed Don Jr., I get everybody. Beautiful, right? Not really. Because they were stupid. They were dumb. And they screwed up. The problem with the FISA court, unlike the unmaskings and the tapping into the database, is they had to produce actual evidence in front of a judge. There was a judge in a FISA court that needed evidence that the Trump team was working on behalf of a foreign power, but critically doing it in violation of a, at least one U.S. law. Folks, they had nothing. They had zero. Do you understand they, to this day, have absolutely zero, zero, remember, don't do it one, that's a big mistake, media people, you'll be, in a, you'll be a white power person after that, you always do it that way, they had zero evidence at all, of, I'm the funny thing, I'm only half kidding, that's how worried I am about the media, they're so crazy these days, right, they had nothing on collusion, nothing, zero. So what does the FBI and the, uh, the, the, the State Department and the DOJ do? They say, well, we don't really have any evidence. Let's just make it up. We've got this guy we worked with in the past, this, this guy Christopher Steele. Now I'm going to do something. I'm not taking a selfie again. I'm not taking a picture of you. Don't you worry. I'm going to read to you another headline. You need to write this down because this one's going to blow your mind. Any of you read the dossier? You haven't, right? Not many people have. You should. If you haven't read the dossier, don't you worry. Because the dossier was already written 
back on April 17th of 2007. You're like, oh, what do you mean? I don't get it. Even 2017, right? No, 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 no. I didn't get that wrong. It's written right here in the Wall Street Journal on April 17, 2007. Who's the author of this critical Wall Street Journal piece? Glenn Simpson and Mary Jacoby, his wife. Glenn Simpson, the purveyor of Fusion GPS. The article is called, How Lobbyists Help Ex-Soviets Woo Washington. Folks, I dare you to take a moment and read that piece. Put it next to the dossier. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same story. It was written 11 years ago. Glenn Simpson clearly had this information about Russian influence in Washington. He wrote 10 years ago. Read the names in the article. You know who appears in this article? Paul Manafort. All of these players. So what likely happened after Plan A collapses is... They say, listen, let's go to the FISA court and do this legally, but we need evidence. We don't have evidence. Don't worry. Hillary Clinton's got a guy at Fusion GPS, says he's got a story to tell. Ladies and gentlemen, Glenn Simpson took his Wall Street Journal piece like it was a movie script, scratched out the names, put Donald Trump's name in there and said, look, do I got a story for you guys? It's all BS. The whole dossier is crap. Read the article. It's a movie script they recycled. It's a, it's a fairy tale. It's an Aesop's fable. It's made up. It's a scam. There is not a scintilla of evidence that it's true. Now, the big question on plan B till I move to the mop-up operation, plan C. Now they're in trouble. They're in a lot of trouble. Because they realize the dossier in and of itself is crap. And a lot of people at the Bureau know it. They need to buttress it with some stuff to make it a little make it a little harder. Now's where the Michael Cohen story comes in, Trump's lawyer. In the dossier is a very specific allegation, right? That Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, went over to Prague to set up this whole information exchange with the Russians, right? Well, what's the problem? Michael Cohen had never been to Prague, and his passport proved it. Where do you think they got that name, Michael Cohen? You're darn right. They probably were in that NSA database looking up a Michael Cohen and they got the wrong guy. I know there's only one Dan Bongino. I can tell you for sure there are a whole lot of Michael Cohens. Are you right? John Smith, John Brown, Cohen. These are common last names. They got the wrong Michael Cohen. So now you should be asking yourself, who the heck was Glenn Simpson dealing with in the government that gave him that name? And how did they get it? Plan B falls apart, too. Plan B falls apart because something happens in November. Donald Trump wins. Nobody, I'm telling you, take it to the bank, cash this check, and spend the money. Nobody saw that coming. No one. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to get in. This was all going to go away. They were going to appoint their own attorney general, probably John Brennan. And this story is never, ever to see the light of day, not in their lifetimes. But make no mistake, they know what they did. They all know what they did. Every single one of them. So they have to move on to Plan C. Plan C, I call it clean up on aisle four. Now they're in trouble. They know they've got white hats in the government. I know one of them right now that's still in the FBI. 
that's unquestionably cooperating with this investigation if you know how to read the tea leaves. And if you read the book, you'll figure out who it is. People start cooperating and talking, and now people are panicking. Now does John Brennan's meltdown after the election make sense? He's the head of the intelligence community who, again, another thing for you to Google, but it's all in the book, again. Who do you think John Brennan met with right before the election at the, quote, director level as reported on by multiple media outlets? Bob Hannigan, the same guy from the British intelligence agency that quits right after Trump's election. He quits 10 days after and doesn't tell anybody about it. He says, oh, I'm leaving for family reasons. What do you mean? You related to Donald Trump? What do you mean family reasons? Family reasons, you're leaving because Donald Trump got elected. Who also quits? John Carlin. Who's John Carlin? He's the head of the Department of Justice National Security Division, the final division in the Department of Justice to put their John Hancock on the FISA warrant. He quits right after the election. Who did John Carlin work for? Now clean up on all four is going to start to make sense. Who did John Carlin work for before he got there into the DOJ? He's Bob Mueller's chief of staff. He was Bob Mueller's chief. Now does Bob Mueller make sense? Clean up, aisle four, get the mops out. Everybody realizes they're all going down. They faked the Pfizer warrant. They have been involved in massive unmaskings. Susan Rice, Samantha Power. They have been uh, busted by the Pfizer court, tapping into the NSA database for about queries. They're, they left a paper trail 65 miles long. Bob Mueller has to clean this whole mess up. Bob Mueller is the only... Do you notice how right away they had the name? So Bob Mueller's old chief of staff, he's the cleanup guy. Bob, make, listen, make no mistake. Bob Mueller's job right now is one thing and one thing only. Keep the heat on Donald Trump relentlessly for anything. Jaywalking, ripping off mattress tags, combing his hair the wrong way. Keep the attention on Trump no matter what. Because the minute the Bob Mueller thing is dissolved, all of this is going to come out, and it is hell hath no fury. It, folks, they left a paper trail. They can't run from this. Mueller is brought in to get Trump impeached because they don't want any of this to see the light of day. Now, why Mueller? Mueller knows every player involved in this and has intimate connections with all of them. The guy who signs off on the BS Pfizer warrant, John Carlin, his old chief of staff. His chief bulldog in the case, Andy Weissman. Andrew Weissman worked with Bob Mueller. Andy Weissman was the chief prosecutor on the Enron case when Bob Mueller was the FBI director. Remember the Enron case that they screwed up royally? That's how they know each other. Andy Weissman hates Donald Trump. He's on emails congratulating Sally Yates for telling Donald Trump to go pound sand. Look, it's better. Who else does Bob Mueller know? On Bob Mueller's Enron team, it all goes back to Enron. That same Enron team, headed by Andy Weissman, had another lead lawyer on the case. Who was it? Catherine Rumler. Who's Catherine Rumler? Obama's White House counsel, who was Obama's lawyer while all of this was going on. They know each other. Now, you may say, fine, so Bob Mueller knows Obama's lawyer why this whole Spygate thing was going on. What's the big deal? You Google George Nader, Daily Beast, you can read an article today. Just popped today before we showed up. 
What of Bob Mueller's lead cooperators in this case who's been selling out members of the Trump team from day one is a guy named George Nader. Who's George Nader's lawyer? Catherine Rumler, Obama's White House counsel and Bob Mueller's buddy. The lawyer for the lead witness in this case feeding information to Mueller is Obama's White House counsel, otherwise known as the fixer. She fixed everything for them. She was involved in Benghazi. She was involved in the IRS. She was involved in the Secret Service scandal. Just Google her name, put in any one of those things, and who's the person giving the statement? Catherine Rumler. Who was also on that Enron task force? Lisa Monaco. Barack Obama's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor in the White House while all of this was going on. They all know each other. Finally, and I'll take some questions. Your final piece to the cleanup on aisle four operation. Who else does Bob Mueller know? Who now has judicial, excuse me, legislative, uh, uh, who has control over this, I should say, right now in the Department of Justice, right? Rod Rosenstein, right? Because Sessions had recused himself, now Whitaker's in there, uh, which was a good appointment, right? A case happens a little while ago, the 10X case. It's around 2015 or so. It happens in Maryland. I'm familiar with it because I worked in Maryland as a Secret Service agent in Baltimore. I wasn't involved in that case at all, but I know the office well. The 10X case goes down in Maryland. The 10X case, a cooperator for the United States government paid $50,000 by the FBI. Comes to the FBI with some troubling information that the Russians are helping the Iranians build their nuclear program and that there's a company helping Russians get a hold of our uranium. It's called the 10X case. It was the precursor to something you may have heard about. The Uranium One operation. The same players are involved. The case gets uh, gets thrown out on a, on, a, on a BS press release on a Friday night so nobody will pay attention. Everybody's gag ordered and it all goes away. That the Obama administration, an FBI paid informant, admitted that we were given the Russians uranium while they were building the Iranian nuclear program and chanting death to America. Who was the lead prosecutor? On that 10X case, the precursor to Uranium One, Rod Rosenstein. And who's the FBI director? Bob Mueller. Folks, they all know each other. This is the biggest scam in American history. Folks, I beg of you. I really do. You cannot let your uh, legislative people, your congressman or anyone off the hook, whatever connections you have, you need to keep the heat on this. Because if these people don't go down, the right way, unlike the Obama administration tried to do it to us, this will happen again. I'm telling you what they did was such a grotesque, horrendous abuse of power. It disgusts me to this day, and I will never, ever forget that story about that guy we arrested and his crying kid that morning who wasn't going to see his dad for another year. That's a horrible thing to have to do to someone, and it's a grotesque thing to do to someone to unleash the power of the federal government when they did nothing wrong. And Donald Trump did nothing wrong. And if you read the book, and by the way, one last thing before I get to the questions. You, it's not a narrative. You don't have to read it straight through. It's written like a police file. I think that's why it's been selling like crazy. You can read the last chapter first. You can go right, it's written like a police file because the names, like I said, this is an hour long speech I compressed into 20 plus minutes. The names never stop coming up again, ever. Oleg Deripaska, connected to Vladimir Putin, who's connected to Adam Waldman, a lobbyist who's emailing and texting Mark Warner, a Democrat on the Senate committee. Who's Waldman working for too? 
Christopher Steele, the guy working for Hillary. They're connected to the Russians. The people that show up at the Trump Tower meeting. Veselnitskaya with Don Jr. and Renat Akhmetshin. Veselnitskaya works for Fusion GPS on a separate case. And Akhmetshin, the other guy, the Russian intel guy that shows up at the Trump Tower meeting. You know who his lawyer is? Edward Lieberman. You know who Lieberman's wife is? Evelyn Lieberman. Bill Clinton's old chief of staff. Read the book, folks. It's all laid out for you. So thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'll take your questions. Thank you. Now that we have the whole story about Russiagate and how NSA search queries were used to attack an American president and anybody's political opponents on either side of the aisle that wasn't going along to get along with this plan to basically usurp the Constitution and allow Congress and the Senate to appoint a president and vice president that serves the needs of the ruling class and the wealthy elite of America and outside of our country. We're going to listen to a Vice News supercut that I'm sure they thought made the Trump campaign sound stupid on technology, but really it's just an average person trying to explain how that was used to corrupt his campaign. This isn't actually something that's wrong that he's saying. It's true, and now that you know all that stuff, you'll understand what he's saying, and you'll understand why Obama's trying to make fun of that, but it's actually sounding like an asshole now that all that's on the table. Because today they just announced somebody else was hacked and another group was hacked. Everybody's being hacked, okay? They're scamming us with cyber. We're living in a cyber world. I'm not a big email person. This is high technology stuff. Now you have to open up things, press a computer, takes you 15 minutes. The computer that picks up a phone. I have a son. He's 10 years old. He has computers. He's using the computer so much. He is so good with these computers. It's unbelievable. He's playing with the computer. We had it on And we said, wait a minute. We had it unlocked. You needed a sequential number. Now the cyber is so big. Cyber attack is a new big problem. Cyber is very, very tough. We have much hacking going on. Hacker. Some guy with a 200 IQ that can't get up in the morning. We talk about the hacking. And hacking's bad. Could be somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds. You know, they're using the internet better than we use it. Using the internet to take our children's minds. We're losing a lot of people because of the internet. And we have to do something. We have to go see Bill Gates. They want to have the internet run by the world. All I know is what's on the internet, and frankly, the internet does cause problems. Maybe in certain areas, closing that internet up in some way. Somebody will say, oh, freedom of speech, freedom of speech. These are foolish people. Now that sounds like he's being foolish there, doesn't it? But here is Lee Camp and Naomi Caravani explaining why that now that that has been set as a precedent, as Lindsey Graham pointed out, they have terrifyingly made it the new normal. And Google can now report you to the cops based on whatever it is you search at home. Again, not my words. Here it is for yourself. Usually police need a suspect for a search warrant. But not anymore. Now Google is giving thousands of suspects to police based on search keywords. For more on the story, we go to our search bar fly, Naomi Caravani. 
Naomi, what can you tell us about these backward searches for suspects? Well, Lee, now maybe criminals will get off the web and benefit from a little less screen time. They're called reverse warrants. Reverse warrants are requests from authorities to Google based on search keywords instead of searching a crime scene or asking witnesses, which is very time intensive. There are no suspects, no names, no knocks, no way to know if uh, you're a suspect. Authorities ask Google for everyone who searched for a keyword, like specific locations, specific names, like say an ex's new partner's name, or recipes for human placenta or for the best homemade bomb. Google then provides the police data on everyone who searched for that particular term. Then police pick their suspect out of all of those people who did those searches. I don't recommend the DIY bomb-making videos anyways. The presenters have no pizzazz, even the ISIS ones. Honestly, the bomb-making books are better. You researched that? I... Aren't you worried that now you'll be a suspect when you're looking up bomb making? Lee, Google knows me. We're homies. I'm crime curious. It's like bi curious, but I'm interested in the hacking to death of all genders. In the latest case come to light, after sending a search warrant to Google that requested information on users who had searched for the address of a residence close in time to an arson, the police arrested an associate of R. Kelly for allegedly setting fire to a witness's car. Once they had a warrant for his account, they found in his search history queries, which included, where can I buy a custom machine gun? witness intimidation, and countries that don't have extradition with the United States. He was asking Google the wrong way. You gotta type into Google, where can I buy a machine gun? For a friend, and not the friend who's a famous sex offender. Okay, that sounds like that would work great. So this seems like a clear-cut case, though, with the R. Kelly guy, but what worries me is that nine times out of ten, these tools will be used on activists, journalists, not on R. Kelly. Just about, they'll be used on just about any citizen who's curious about extradition, which, you know, I am right now. Honestly. China, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Bangladesh, you can just Google it. Or you could use DuckDuckGo or StarPage. I prefer Google because it's nice to know someone's always watching me all the time. I love the attention. Explain more about Google working with law enforcement, though. We'll get For years, Google has been providing authorities with all the location data of users in close proximity to a crime. Geofence warrants, they're called. But be rest assured that our big tech brother, Google, will only give the data for 1,500 users for one specific location. Only 1,500? That's a ton of people! Don't innocent people get swept up in this lazy dragnet? In some cases, they get the wrong guy, sure. But so long as you're not near any crimes, you're fine. Just make sure to not go for a bike ride past a burglarized home like this guy did and became a suspect. He had to hire a lawyer because he biked by the crime scene several times that day. Christ, they're punishing people for biking now. I know! He should have taken a scooter. He would have downgraded from criminal suspect to lost man-child. <laughs> How many of these backdoor requests is Google getting? Well, we don't know until court documents are unsealed, so we don't know the number. But an exponential increase of requests over the last few years have troubled 
Google staffers. As one Google software engineer said, it's like entering the wrongful arrest lottery. But honestly, something like a raffle might make the criminal justice system more fair. We could have a show who wants to be a convict. Lee, it's technological progress. I very much disagree. Thank you, Naomi. So, all you folks that are being contact traced at your protests and things like that, now you know how that's being used to monitor and severely during the election. But all of these things, all totaled up together, are tantamount to a coup in no uncertain terms. They're playing everybody against everybody in order to distract us from what's actually going on, which is the theft of our elections. So let's find out who can afford to pay for that kind of influence in our country and to try and upend and investigate everybody from the President of the United States to people who are protesting on behalf of their social movement or their belief systems in America. Here is a clip with Larry Lessig on the state of our supposed representative democracy. So, it turns out exactly a year ago, right now, right this minute, a year ago in Hong Kong, an extraordinary protest began. Protest begun by students, literally high school and college students, elementary school students, and their parents felt a little embarrassed that they had let the kids work so hard. Their parents showed up as well. And the protest was about a law. And the law was proposed by China. The law was to determine how the governor of Hong Kong would be selected. And the law said the ultimate aim was the selection of the chief executive by universal suffrage upon nomination by a broadly representative nominating committee in accordance with democratic procedures. Okay, so the idea was there's a two-step process. The first step was nomination, and then the second step was an election. And the nominating committee would be comprised of about 1,200 people, which means out of 7 million people, that is 0.02% of Hong Kong. All right, now 0.02%, as you can see, is a really tiny number, really, really small. If you thought about it relative to all the people in Hong Kong, it would look something like this. This tiny little corner is 0.02%. So 0.02% get to pick the candidates that the rest of Hong Kong gets to vote among, and the protest was because the fear was this filter would be a biased filter. The claim was that the 0.02% would be dominated by a pro-Beijing business and political elite. So 99.98% would be excluded from this critical first step with the consequence, obviously, of producing a democracy responsive to China only. Okay, now it turns out the Chinese stole this idea from an American. Don't worry, there was no patent or copyright, so there's no IP violations going on here. But they stole the idea from an American, maybe the greatest political philosopher in America, a man named Boss Tweed. <laughs> Boss Tweed, the head of the Tammany Hall uh, political party, used to say, I don't care who does the electing as long as I get to do the nominating. So this conception, this kind of <laughs> conception of politics has an obvious logic to it, right? Because if you control the nomination, every candidate is going to worry what you, the nominator, think. 
So you practically control the candidate, whether or not you control the ultimate election. We can call that genius theory, that genius theory for destroying democracy, tweedism. Tweedism. Any two-stage process where the tweeds get to nominate and then the rest get to select is tweedism. And the consequence of tweedism, obviously, is to produce a system responsive to tweeds only. Now, tweedism was practiced not just in the North, not just in New York. It was practiced in the South, too. Texas, 1923, practiced tweedism. By law, in 1923, Texas passed a statute that said, in the Democratic primary, only whites could vote. Only whites could vote. Blacks could vote in the general election if, of course, they could get registered, given all the barriers to registration. But only whites could vote in the Democratic primary. And, of course, back then, hard to imagine, but back then, the only party that mattered was the Democratic Party in Texas. So in this two-stage process, blacks were excluded from the first stage. 16% of Texas excluded from this critical first stage, with the consequence obviously producing a democracy responsive to whites only. Now, those cases are obvious to us. Everyone looks at that and says, there's something obviously wrong with those so-called democracies to set up their structure in that way. So why don't we see it here? We take it for granted in the United States that campaigns will be privately funded. But we need to recognize funding is its own contest. Funding is its own primary. We have the voting system where people vote, but in the first stage to that, there is a money primary that determines which candidates are allowed to run in those voting elections. Now, that money primary takes time. Members of Congress and candidates for Congress spend anywhere between 30 and 70% of their time dialing for dollars. This is an old telephone. You might not recognize this, but <laughs> dialing for dollars, calling people all across the country to get the money they need to run their campaigns or to get their party back into power. B.F. Skinner gave us this wonderful image of the Skinner box where any stupid animal could learn which buttons it needed to push for its sustenance. This is a picture of the life of the modern American congressperson. <laughs> as the modern American congressperson. Comes to learn which buttons he or she needs to push to get the sustenance he or she needs to make his or her campaign successful. This is their life and it has an effect. Each of them, as they do this, develop a sixth sense, a constant awareness about how what they do might affect their ability to raise money. They become, in the words of the X-Files, shape-shifters. As they constantly adjust their views in light of what they know will help them to raise money, not in issues 1 to 10, but in issues 11 to 1,000, Leslie Byrne, a Democrat from Virginia, describes that when she went to Congress, she was told by a colleague, quote, always lean to the green. And to clarify, she went on, you know, he was not an environmentalist. <laughs> so this obviously is a primary, too. It's the money primary. It's not a white primary, it's the green primary. It's the first stage in a multi-stage process to select the candidates who will represent us. So if this is the structure, we should interrogate who are the funders. Well, we can think about who the biggest funders are. In 2014, the top 100 gave as much as the bottom 4.75 million funders to congressional campaigns. In this election cycle so far, 400 families have given half the money in the election contributions and contributions to super PACs so far. 400 families. 
That's not American democracy. That is banana republic democracy. <laughs> and then we can think not just about the biggest funders, but think about the relevant funders. Of course, the people giving millions of dollars have the attention of the members of Congress. But how much do you need to give to be relevant? How much do you need to give to, be, to matter to those Congress people as they're dialing for dollars to raise money from you? Well, let's take the people who maxed out in 2014. And in 2014, that means you gave $5,200 to at least one candidate in the general primary and in the general election. 2014, it turns out 57,874 Americans maxed out in that way. So we could say 57,874 gave enough to matter, to control, to be the dominant force in this first stage of the election process. And then some of you out there, the math of geniuses out there, beginning to do the numbers, you're thinking 57,874? Wait, wait, wait a minute. That's 0.02% of America. 0.02% of America dominate this first stage in the process of electing the candidates who will represent us. They pick the candidates, because you can't be credible unless you get their money, and we get to vote for those candidates. This tiny fraction of the 1%, this Chinese fraction of the 1%, dominate this first stage with the consequence, obviously, of producing a democracy responsive to these funders only. This Princeton study, which is a Harvard professor, I'm not allowed to talk about much, so let's get it off the stage quick, <laughs> by Martin Gillens and Ben Page, the largest empirical study of actual decisions by our government in the history of political science, related the actual decisions of our government over the past 40 years with the views of the economic elite, the views of organized interest groups, and the views of the average voter. And what they found was there was a nice correlation between the views of the economic elite and what our government actually did. So as you go from 0% of the elite supporting something to 100%, the probability of that proposal being passed goes up. Same thing with organized special interest groups. As the number of them supports something increases, the probability of that proposal being passed goes up. Here's the graph for the average voter. It's a flat line. Flatline, literally and figuratively. What this is saying is, as the percentage of average voters supporting a proposal goes from zero to 100%, it doesn't change the probability that that proposal will be enacted. As they put in English, when the preferences of the economic elites and the stands of organized interest groups are controlled for, the preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near zero, a statistically non-significant impact on public policy in a democracy, this is true. Right, so here's the picture that we had. We were told of our democracy. There we were, citizens driving the bus. But here's the reality. The reality is... <laughs> the reality is the steering wheel has become detached from this bus. We don't drive the bus anymore. We do not, not anecdotally, in the most aggressive empirical analysis, have no relationship to what our government does. This is a product of tweetism. Tweetism. And what tweetism is, is first corruption. It's a corruption of the design of our representative democracy. When Madison gave us our representative democracy, he described it in Federalist 52 to be a system that would have a branch, Congress, that would be, quote, dependent on the people 
alone, an exclusive dependence. But that's not our Congress. They're dependent on the people and dependent on the tweeds. And then to go on to clarify, Madison in Federalist 57 said, by the people, he means, quote, not the rich more than the poor. Not the rich more than the poor. But that's not our reality. The people today mean not the rich more than the poor, except for the tweeds. The tweeds have more power than the middle class and the poor. This is corruption. It's not criminals. It's a system in which decent people who come to this city to do the right thing find themselves bent to do the thing the tweeds demand because that's the only way you can survive. It is corruption, but it is caused by a basic inequality that we've allowed to evolve inside of our representative system, an inequality. Remember Orwell's all animals are created equal and what we've got here, all animals are created equal, but the tweeds are more equal than others. It is inequality. But what's critical about recognizing that it's inequality is if we could remove the inequality, if we could address that fundamental inequality in this representative democracy, if we could neutralize this tweedism, then we could crack the corruption that makes it impossible for our government to do any of the things we want our government to do. We could achieve a system dependent on the people alone because only the people would be having the influence inside that government. It would be a system where not the rich more than the poor were the people because everyone would, because of this equality, have the capacity to press the government in the direction they want the government pressed. Equality. I'm not talking about wealth equality. That's important to worry about too. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the equality we have as citizens. Now to get that, what I've been arguing we need to talk about is a statute that Congress ought to pass tomorrow. Statute, let's call it the Citizen Equality Act. And what the Citizen Equality Act does first is it changed the way campaigns are funded to make it so that instead of this green primary, we have a money primary, but citizens are funding these campaigns as much as anyone else. The money comes from all of us through proposals like the American Anti-Corruption Act or John Sarbanes Government by the People Act that would provide small dollar public funding to fund congressional campaigns so that they wouldn't be dependent on this tiny few to fund their campaigns. That's the critical first dimension of equality we ought to insert back into this representative democracy. And there's other inequalities inside of our system. We need equal representation inside of our system. This article, this fantastic article written by Christopher Ingraham for the Washington Post, graphs these gerrymandered districts in the United States. These are congressional districts in the United States. Here's my favorite example of this. You can see the natural community that bounds these people together here. (laughs) This is a system, they said it's crimes against geography. That's kind of a nice way of putting it. But this is a system where the politicians are picking the voters. The voters aren't picking the politicians and they pick the voters to create safe seats. Democrats and Republicans both play this game. So in our Congress today, 90 seats are competitive, which means 345 seats are these safe seats, which means if you're a minority party in each of these 345 seats, you don't matter to the representative because the representative knows he or she doesn't need you, which means 89 million Americans are not represented in this system because we structured this in a way that makes sure 
that these people don't count. That's inequality. And Fair Vote has a proposal which is incorporated in the Citizen Equality Act to radically change the way we make these districts work so that we have proportional fair representation across the country. And finally, an equal freedom to vote. The absurd ways in which we make it hard for people to vote and it's not accidental how we make it hard for people to vote. In the last election, 10 million people had to wait more than 30 minutes to vote, which for people with nannies and iPhones might not seem like a bad thing. But if you're a working family who can't afford that kind of support, that's a poll tax that's too high for too many. And of course, as the... As the Brennan Center found in a study that they made of this, this poll tax is correlated strongly with race. It's racially correlated in the sense that where there are black or brown districts, they're less likely to have the resources necessary to make it possible to vote easily. That, of course, I think is more directly correlated with party, which leads to many proposals incorporated in the Citizen Equality Act, including the Voting Rights Advancement Act that would attack some of these provisions that make it hard for people to vote, and Bernie Sanders' suggestion of Democracy Day, where we move voting to a holiday so working people can vote just as easily as those who don't have to. So these three ideas, these three ideas get wrapped into one statute, a statute Congress could pass tomorrow to achieve this equality, to make this representative democracy possible. Okay, now I push this as the core fight we ought to have. And people say, well, why? There's so many issues out there. Why would you pick this one to push? And there's a practical reason. The practical reason is we will get nothing from this government till we get this. You want this government to address the problem of climate change? We will not get climate change legislation until we address this fundamental inequality in this broken democracy. You want Congress to address the problem of Social Security, to make sure that there is Social Security. We will not get a government to address that problem until we fix this democracy. You want Congress to address the problem of student debt. We are not going to address the problem of student debt until we address this problem of democracy. So it's not that this is the most important issue. It's not those issues are the most important issue. This is just the first issue. This is the issue we've got to solve if we're going to have any chance to solve the long list of critical problems that we as a nation must address. So practically, this is why we need to put this first. But it's not just practical, it's moral. 400 years after slavery came to these shores, I think it's time we have a peaceful fight for equality that we have a campaign, a national campaign, everybody who rallies around the idea that it's finally time that we stand up for this idea of equality. It is an embarrassment to our traditions that in 2015 we have movements that need to assert that black lives matter. How could that possibly be? But I can tell you that it is because we have a political system that doesn't count us equally. We have a political system that counts some more than others. We have a political system that betrays the fundamental idea of a representative democracy. 54 years ago, Martin Luther King 
went to Lincoln University and gave a speech in which he said, America is essentially a dream. The substance of the dream is expressed in these sublime words, words lifted to cosmic proportion that all are created equal. Now you've heard it said that the Pope shouldn't talk about climate science, so I shouldn't talk about what the creator meant. But let me tell you about the reality, whatever the creator meant. The reality is we are not equal in America today. The reality is we do have second-class citizens in America today. And the reality is until we confront the fact that this ideal is a fantasy in America today, we will not begin to have a democracy that represents us. We need to learn from our brothers and sisters 50 years ago who risked their lives to fight for equality. And we need to learn from our brothers and sisters from all the way around the world who are risking their lives now to fight for equality, to fight for equality, to love for equality, to sacrifice that sense of love, to sacrifice for equality. Because if we don't, how will we look at our children who look back at us and say, look at what you inherited and then squandered? Look at what you had and then left to us because we were given the nation with the potential to be the greatest democracy in the world. And we have allowed that potential to die. Thank you very much. Thank you. And how did our representative democracy handle that in the Democratic Party this year? They nominated the writer of the crime bill and stop and frisk as presidential candidate and nominated as his vice president, a person who is responsible for obstructing the Supreme Court for three years, refusing to let out minor drug offenders in California to save the state of California money on things like firefighters rather than let them out and give them jobs and fund the fire department instead of private prisons' pockets. People like the GEO group make decisions like that, and they invest in both parties. And how is that going to play out during this election if, let's say, it's a tie, a dead heat, and the Democratic Congress gets to pick a president of their choosing, and a Republican Senate gets to choose a vice president of their choosing? Well, all the worst things that have happened on behalf of corporations is what would happen in that event. So let's see if that's the rule or if that's just something that I'm making up. Um, I'm going to look. I actually don't know what happens if it's a tie, and I'm going to look now. Does Nancy Pelosi default or something? Ooh. In the United States, a contingent election is the is the procedure used to elect a president or vice president in the event that no candidate for one or both of these offices wins an absolute majority of votes in the Electoral College. A contingent election for the president is decided by a vote of the United States House of Representatives. Congress decides. While a contingent election for the president, for the vice president, is decided by a vote of the United States Senate. Oh my God, that's interesting. Because that would mean the Democrats in the House would pick Biden to be president, and then the Republicans in the Senate would pick a Republican to be vice president. And then what, the Supreme Court picks? 
to the default that doesn't go further. During a contingent election, each House state delegation casts one vote uh, to determine the president rather than a vote from each representative. Senators instead cast votes individually for vice president. The contingent election process was first established in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3 of the U.S. Constitution. It was subsequently modified by the 12th Amendment in 1804. The phrase contingent election is not found in the text of the Constitution itself, but has been used to describe the procedure since at least 1823. Mm. Wait, so I, I just I read over that real quick, and you kind of glossed over it. It says that Which the president part? and vice president are indirectly elected, so that means they pick them, they each are picked separately? Right, that's what I said. So I, know, really no, I know it's system. going so fast. This Sorry. is a very bad yeah. system. I said, I said you have the Congress picks the president, and then it's the Senate that picks the vice president. The Senate is Republican right now, uh, and Congress is Democratic right now. So you'd have a Democrat at the top of the ticket and a Republican at the bottom of the ticket. I think you'll have a winner. I think it's just going to Trump Somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to win these things. I th so, as you just heard, if Biden wins buy enough votes to actually have a win corporations win if there's a dead heat corporations win if Donald Trump wins we continue to draw down troops out of bad places in the Middle East that they shouldn't have been in the first place we don't go to war with Syria we make a better deal than the Iran nuclear deal with Iran and other countries and it will be contingent upon negotiations between the other two superpowers in that closer proximity and at the end of the day what that would really hurt is it would hurt the bottom line of people in the United Kingdom and the European Union and their oil prices so as you can see there's economic interests outside of America's economic interests that are being taken into consideration above the interests of American citizens who are about to lose their houses and who are, some of them, getting good jobs now. And not everybody has those available just yet. Journalism was basically destroyed over the last four years, but that wasn't entirely done by Donald Trump. As a matter of fact, they baited a fight with the fake journalism system, or what's normally known as the legacy media system, and everything you've heard up until this point, right up to this election, has essentially been a plan to expose this internal apparatus that's used to rig elections against people that they don't want as president or as a congressman. Because as you heard, there are only 90 seats or so available at any given point, and only 0.02% of our population actually gets to make a decision about who fills those seats. Now the statistics about who files taxes on a million dollars or more in this country are like 0.015% of the population files taxes on a million dollars or more. So that leaves a quarter to a full point available in that group of people that are foreign economic interests that are tied to United Nations and European Union and Asian economic community and you know Russian interests. Those are all at play, as a matter of fact, in, in UAE, the, the UAE. And the biggest winner out of the Democratic side of things, believe it or not, even though Donald Trump has been touted as the greatest friend to Israel, is actually Israel. So no matter what, they continue to get billions of dollars in donations from the American government and from American citizens. They get to topple Assad if a Democrat takes office, 
and peace is actually contingent upon whether or not Donald Trump doesn't have an election stolen from him. That seems to be the case that in actuality. So they're fighting and competing with each other, and there's an antagonism between Russians and American soldiers in the Middle East right now because we're two big tough guys in a room, and we're having a dick-measuring contest about who is going to basically get to do what. And at the end of the day... Dick Cheney is on the board of advisors for an oil company who's going to be running pipeline out of Mongolia through Russia and through into the European Union and out of the Middle East. So (laughs) he wins either way. Do you think that's a good thing that Rothschild and Dick Cheney and some people from the CIA and a few American politicians, no matter what happens to our government and Americans in general, are going to be making hand over fist buku bucks while our democracy is taken away from us and they destabilize the constitution and totally upend things I have a feeling that this is sort of what Donald Trump meant by we need to make a better deal and people who are aware of this other system of government knew that but there aren't enough regular Americans aware of how this system actually works for that to have been something that he could have communicated even in four years hopefully with this couple of hour long podcast here you'll be able to get right with that and maybe seek some better information while we determine whether or not we're going to allow this coup to take place or we're going to actually demand a representative democracy in this republic and whether we're going to continue to be America with an American dollar or whether we're going to adopt a digital currency created in the Asian economic community and we have to pay fealty to corporations who will then be able to use things like social credit scores to determine whether or not you can or cannot access your funds in the same way that these hackers figured out how to hack an election. Now, we're going to get into that here. I know I said that at the beginning of the podcast we would cover that. It's it's a lot faster to cover that than it is to actually explain to you how your government works, believe it or not. So now you know exactly what was done during this last four years to confuse the electorate about who to vote for and why. As opposed to broadcasting facts, we got this. Well, but there has to be, I think, some sort of way in which we can uh, sort through information that passes some basic uh, truth, truthiness tests. Uh, and, uh, and and those that we have to discard uh, because they just don't, don't have any basis in uh, anything that's actually happening in the world. And that's hard to do, uh, but I think it's, it, it's going to be necessary, it's going to be possible. The epidemic of malicious fake news. Say that the scales were tipped unfairly through fake news. Uh, is this the year of fake news? Fake news. Fake news is shared more than ever. Fake news stories. So much fake news out there. Fake news. The growing and booming business of creating fake news. So-called fake news. Fake news stories. Fake news websites. To eliminate any hoaxes or fake news content on Facebook. A fake news story. Fake news conspiracy. The fake news is making fake news into the fake news phenomenon. There has to be consequences for any of these people. You get the FBI should be investigating these people and they should be sued for slander, libel, do do whatever is possible. Growing 
problem of fake news. Fake news is getting out there. Industrialized fake news operations. Media that focus on scandals and spread fake news to smear politicians risk becoming like people who have a morbid fascination with excrement. Following this week, fake news. That Being a fake news story. You when fake news stories new use the name. Julian, fake news. All across the board. The fake news trend is There's fake news, flat out fake news and fake news and false information and right. the problem now is there are no gatekeepers uh, anybody can set up a website and just that that it was a crazy idea they wouldn't have come forward and told the journalists that they were forming these secret task forces to confront fake news and to tell the broader company that they thought this was an issue this way for if people feel like they can contribute that then they will trust things, they will trust institutions, they will trust governments, if they feel that they have a voice. And it's our job to figure out how can we make this thing the president was talking about, how can we make the, the system that allows people to contribute, but it's somehow vetted so that all that knowledge can be shared because we need all hands on deck. <laughs> Danger that must be addressed, and addressed quickly. Bipartisan legislation is making its way through Congress to boost the government's response to foreign propaganda, and Silicon Valley is starting to grapple with the challenge and threat of fake news. This comes after social media sites have vowed to crack down on these fake news sites, but doesn't that get really close to censorship? Here now. So, who decides what fake news is? Who gets to tell us what that is? The same people that made up Russiagate? and paid for a fake dossier? Is that who gets to tell us what is and isn't real? Do you think that that's a terribly good idea that we should allow them to continue to decide what is and isn't accurate information for us as a general population? Somebody in another video there, at the end of the video there, mentioned a industrialized fake news apparatus. Now, is that a thing that actually exists? Let's find out. I'm certain that there has been a compilation or two made perfectly illustrating what that is and what that actually sounds like. Well, but there has to be, I think, some sort of way in which we can uh, sort through information that passes some basic uh, truth, truthiness tests. Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso, Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS 4 News produces. But we are concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible once again. Plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has become, become all too common on, on social, social media. More alarming, some media this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely 
dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. I would agree. That militarized apparatus of news media considered to be legacy media is in fact extremely dangerous to our democracy and would perfectly explain why it is that things like Russiagate and a dumb P-tape scandal that are totally made up, fabricated, and paid for by multiple agencies interoperatively between the UK and the United States were able to launch an investigation illegally into a president. And now the same tech companies that are telling us what is and isn't fake news are also reporting us to the cops based on whether or not you happen to search, I don't know, maybe you took a psychology class, and so you're looking up serial killers and the history of serial killers, and now all of a sudden you happen to be in close proximity to a serial killer, and all of a sudden you're the number one suspect, and then you get busted and spend life in jail because you were looking up serial killers. (laughs) Something that there's literally books about, and there are people that just enjoy horror movies, for example, All these things are forms of censorship that are completely unacceptable in this society and always have been. It is not democracy. That is a state-run news apparatus. That is communism. That is the very thing that they were accusing this president of trying to create and do when, in fact, he declared war on it. And so when they put out that news media information, it wasn't just a couple of news organizations that got the same fluff story here and there. They were able to prove that all of these news organizations do this. They just use the system to entrap the system. It's actually a very, very clever tactic that they did, bordering on counterintelligence. It's uh, very effective, no? Without further ado, due to time sensitivity on an issue that's being uh, presented in social media where an event happened in D.C., following independent media commentary on the elections uh, in which the leader of the Proud Boy was was stabbed by a group of people on the streets during the election chaos. This has become an important issue to understand. This media apparatus can be used to create fervent violence if you are unable to bear truthful information and form your own opinions and have a polite and nonviolent discourse with people who disagree with you, it leads to nothing but violence. Now let's get real about why bubble sheet counting machines and stuff like that aren't necessarily as reliable as we're being told and why they might be boarding up the windows at counting places in Pennsylvania and other places in which they don't want you to see what they're doing with the voting machines. There's a long list of reasons why they would do that and they've spent a good long while studying how to rig every different kind of voting machine to skew the election results. And again, a reminder, they don't have to win, not even in a landslide. Preferable would be the win, but just in case, they only need the election to be contested, in which 
the Democratic-controlled Congress can put in whoever they want as president, and the Republicans who aren't speaking to support a fair election right now, they aren't outwardly discussing it and in support of the president pointing this out just like he did when he was pointing out that the FBI illegally investigated him and all these other things, as we've now covered, was illegal activity taken by the FBI. It has become apparent that we are, in no uncertain terms, in the middle of a coup with people working on the inside and outside of government to try and oust a president. For the first time in history, we are actually in jeopardy of losing our democracy if people don't wake up to this fact. tell you what we're going to do today. We have constructed a mini election, uh, but Harry Hersey, as you have served as a technical advisor of how to do this, we're going to ask you to remain outside. After you, let me introduce you to my election staff. To ensure that we've not prepared some sort of a a device that has been pre-rigged, Pick the number, and then we'll grab that unit, and that will be the device that we will count the ballots on. I just feel like this is the one. Okay, and the winner is unit 15191. 15191. What we have here is a programmed optical scan ballot. Uh, There is only one question on this ballot. Can the votes on the Diebold system be hacked using the memory card? I have only touched the memory card, not the other parts of the Diebold election system, which is going to be used today. Only the memory card. Uh, I I can certainly speak for myself and Harry and that we're going to vote yes. All right, then let's have the rest of us vote no. Two individuals... Hugh and Harry will be voting yes. The rest of us will be voting no. And then we'll scrutinize the ballots afterwards to ensure that that is indeed the mark. I will say that I'm wrong and Diebold is right. And I'm going to say uh, no, they cannot be hacked. It's impossible. So I vote no. I'm going to feel myself voting. Excuse me. I'm going to mark this ballot no. Okay. Dr. Thompson? I am going to mark this ballot yes. Seen some pretty concerning things. Well, it's down to your You're the last voter, Harry. All right. I think it could be. So I vote for yes. You will be the second yes. All right. I am, here is the memory card I have touched. Okay. Now, this is the only piece of Diebold equipment that you've used. That's correct. Well, thank you. Let me take your ballot in. <laughs> this card will go into this slot. The next activity that the election worker does on the morning of the election is turn the machine on making it live to receive votes. When you do that, this machine will produce what is called a zero total tape. The machine is going through a self-test analysis, and then it will spontaneously turn on. 
This is Harry's card that is telling us that there are zero votes stored in the memory. Okay, let me get the ballots. Let's insert a yes ballot. We're going to put in another no. Seven. And the last no ballot. Eight. Placing the ender card in this device and telling it to turn off its counting function and do its reporting function will now cause the voting machine to print out a tape reading the number of votes that it had just read. Oh my. said it could be hacked and we put through six and two six, six no's no. and two <gasps> yes oh my gosh do you know what this means how do we know that harry didn't just change the report and the votes themselves on the memory card are still correct if that was the case when they go into gems the results would be different isn't that right the only way to know that is to read them into gems and to check the vote totals. See what Jim says. Should we do that? I think we should because I want to confirm for my own analysis is this just a superficial. Correct. Right. That's a good, that's a good no, question. Did we just change the words on this paper? And we will upload this memory card. not to, I would have certified this election as a true and accurate result of a vote.
don't know exactly how to describe what what I saw here. Um, I think we, as election officials, need to be a little bit more demanding from the vendors as to the technical specifications of this equipment. The vendors are driving the process of voting technology in the United States. I would much rather at this point, I think, focus on allowing citizens to select technology that satisfies their needs. So as you just heard there, that was a deep old system, which are an older system. But the thing about that is, is that for the, since 2014, machines have been being hacked. And so much so that, that at a trade show for hacking, for the tech industry that is currently been interfering with First Amendment free speech and all these different things, and overwhelmingly supports the democratic agenda because they want to silence hate speech and all this stuff. And in their eyes, hate speech is anybody that doesn't want to vote for Biden or Kamala Harris in this election. Uh, hate speech is anybody who didn't agree with Obama's presidency, which is a lot of people on both sides of the argument in hindsight. Now, for that five-year period, six-year period since 2014, uh, one election was stolen in Boulder, Colorado, where I'm from, that or in Pueblo, Colorado is where I'm from, but in Boulder, Colorado, an election was stolen by simply making a pencil mark on a ballot so that the machine wouldn't count it properly. There are machines that can be hacked like that. There are machines that if you use the wrong kind of marker, they, they can't be read correctly. And then in addition to that, the memory card is what was used in this instance here. So somebody who's a hacker who can who is in charge of doing things like this, can program and change a couple of ones and zeros, and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, they change the election results. Okay, so, or they skew it to, for every every one vote for Trump, they give up two votes for the other guy. And this kind of shit can be done really easily. It is actually not very complicated at all. Most people don't understand that that is what hacking is. Hacking is much more simple than somebody on a computer being a super genius. No, no, no. Hacking is the seeking of, of a way to manipulate a system to be used in a way that it was not intended to be used. And they spent five years figuring out how to hack our election system leading up to this election. Five years, at least, using the brightest minds in hacking and in tech at trade shows in Las Vegas and at places like Princeton University's Hackathon where they created the fake news warning system that's on on Facebook now that was created and given an award by Princeton University and Google. That was something that was created here where I'm at right now at Princeton. In addition to that, they went after independent media to try and silence independent media. These were all things that were done under the Obama administration with Hillary Clinton as the Department of State head. They did this on purpose. This was an attack on free speech from moment one. And while Donald Trump, who is not a politician, was has been in office, he, he isn't a career politician. He would not have even known what is going on or how to articulate this. 
as somebody who studies front page web development, I've been a mechanic and a plumber, all these different kinds of things. I'm basically a hacker, but in a, in the white hat sense of that, and meaning that I I don't allow for people to misuse a system, but I do study how systems can be misused. Sometimes you can misuse a system for a good reason, which is I'm sure altruistically what some of these folks believe they're doing by skewing the election results. But in reality, what they've created is a situation where we're losing our democracy. Now, there are a bunch of other videos about hacking that I will just post in comment sections for this podcast where you can look into and verify all the information I just said at the end of this one. But in the interest of time and national security, given the events that are taking place and that there is actual violence taking place against people who support one candidate over the other, and the violent nature of what's going on with the Democratic Party right now, it's actually a moral imperative that I post this as soon as possible. I did have to call the FBI again today, and this time I called up to report the fact that during another independent journalist's podcast about polling results... Somebody in the comments section mentioned that this election for people who don't care about who is in office, they just want the, the country to work, said that this election is kind of like waiting to find out if you're going to get stabbed in the back or shot in the face. And the, the leader of the Proud Boy group got sta- and his wife got stabbed in Washington, D.C. They stabbed her in the back. And so this was within 24 hours of that commentary on on the Tim Black podcast, and and he's out of Washington, D.C. I also mentioned that in my podcast talking about the FBI. These people have gone rogue, and they're hackers that can do this stuff, and they keep track of independent dissent voices that aren't for one side or the other, and they are trying to make us an enemy of the state. So it's convenient for both the criminal activity that's going on with people inside of those movements that are doing terrorist-like activities, because I had to break to you, whether you're a Black Lives supporter or not, when people start getting stabbed on behalf of your organization, you just entered into terrorist threat as, as as a new paradigm. That isn't okay. I'm sure that most people in that movement wouldn't agree to go full Lord of the Flies, pull out the kitchen knives, and go track down and stab the leader of the Proud Boys who happens to be a Latinx person. He's not even a white person. He's Latinx. So this is minority against minority crime against the Proud Boy organization from the same group of people who aren't even bothering to mention things like black-on-black crime as part of their argument. And if you sit there and listen to the politics that are being discussed at their meetings, which I have heard one group of people sit there have this discourse, they're arguing financial and political systems like uh, communism and socialism and their Marxism. And they're not even remotely interested in dealing with the systemic oppression. They are just trying to use financial means to go after what they perceive as fascism. And as Orwell stated, if you use that means and method to go after fascism, you will thereby allow fascism in by the back door. So we now have... As one intellectual put it, fascists that are called anti-fascists because anarchists don't form groups. Anarchists behave independently. Independent media is a form of anarchic behavior in the sense of it's nonviolent and it's organic. And it provides a 
lubrication, let's say, between the formation of new ideas that are from one side to the other. And without that, tribalism develops. So it's more in the hermetic sense of anarchism. It's not a anarchism in which you go out to cause violence. It's exactly the opposite. You're trying to reduce harm and you're trying to increase freedom of movement and freedom of existence through means of journalism and discourse and philosophy and all of these things that are traditional education things that we used to get in things like a classical education, which we no longer get. So it's not confusing as to why so many people are confused about how easy it is to skew the numbers. And at the beginning of this podcast and in the Larry Lessig speech, it's addressed who's actually buying for and paying this craziness that's happening in the country right now. Top 400 families in the United States decide the election outcomes. They also have enough money to pay groups of people to go out and commit acts of violence. So it isn't just George Soros that does that, although he did get kicked out of an entire country and have one of his schools shut down in another country for doing exactly that. That is not a conspiracy theory. This is a fact. And so there are arguments that are being made for new forms of voting in which you get a, a choice candidate system in which you can have multiple choices and then the one that gets the most amount of votes here is the one that wins. And everybody thinks that's, that's a good idea. And I'm about to tell you why, from a basic algebraic standpoint, why that's a bad idea with this current apparatus in place. With the ranked choice voting system, if you have five candidates that people can vote on, okay, the same effect that, that the Democratic Party always accuses people of when they lose, when somebody like Ralph Nader tries to run for office and, and presents a dissenting discourse or Bernie Sanders has an overwhelming movement and, pre and presents an alternate set of information that people are more receptive to, with op opposition research, which is basically just mass surveillance that's been done by private companies that now have top secret access to NSA search files, as we've covered in this podcast, these people can enrage every single one of those groups independently and turn them on each other and thereby eliminate pieces of the game. It's like checkers. It's not like chess. It's less complicated than chess. They, they want to say that they're playing chess, but it's really, it's just like checkers. You get them all in line in the way that you want them to line up, and then you jump all the, all the moves from the back. You come raging forward from the front, and that's exactly what is happening right now with this electoral count that's going on. That is exactly, in no uncertain terms, what's going on with that. We need to demand that this vote be recounted fairly. We need to demand that they take down the boards off the places where they be, can be observed counting the votes. Because all of these things, like things from a memory card being programmed a little differently that are undetectable, they, they can clear the logs the voting logs, they can program it to where the voting logs register something other than what it's supposed to register. They can literally program these things in advance and make them that easy to hack to where it's instead of saying this vote's supposed to go here, it does the exact opposite, okay? This is like a bad plot from Superman 3 in which they are trying to change the, or from office space even, where they change a couple of ones and zeros and they try and embezzle the extra change that's, that's a fraction of a penny off the back of the thing. Well, they got a fractional system here in which they were trying to skew this vote. They were trying to skew it. 
they should have stopped the vote count and we should actually, God help me, make the military do it because there's no other way to ensure our national security in this election. This is, as was described in Larry Lessig's talk, the exact same thing that happened in China. The exact same thing that happened in China, in which they squashed democracy, and a select board of people were then allowed to choose who it was that was going to become the president. In the Democratic Party, the people that supported the two prison state candidates that we have as electorate selections, those people were put in there by private interests. And then all the lobbyists went and supported Trump's agenda. And they called it the Pied Piper strategy. They wanted to divide the country and then come in and rage in from the back and then overtake all of these independent people's groups, like things like the Tea Party and all these things that have existed before. They're not unified. And so it was easy to, they vote blue no matter who, they go in from the back and they can take over the election. Again, I'm not, I, I voted Obama, Obama in twice. And then... I switched over to the Democratic Party to vote for Bernie Sanders, but I'm not a Bernie bro. All the stuff that some of these guys are sitting there talking about during this last election with Bernie Sanders working for his campaign, some of these people seem like plants to me. Some of these people that were talking about violence and all this kind of shit, uh, yeah, that was not the group of people that supported Bernie Sanders in the first place. The group of people that supported Bernie Sanders in the first place were actual progressives, and a lot of those people switched over to Trump because they didn't care. They did not care about what was going on. They just knew that there's something not being addressed and that this other guy was a protest vote to the Democratic Party who has no intention of providing us with what those things are that we asked for, even though they passed on ballot initiatives across the country. They don't want to do that. They want to invest in private prisons. They want a war in Syria. And the people that are voting for Democrats also vote for war. Joe Biden is one of the leading members of Congress and in the, when he was in that ran us into war. He was literally on the board of people who voted us into the Iraq war, an illegal war that was taken out on false pretenses, and he didn't want to hear any other narrative. That's who Joe Biden is. He didn't just write the crime bill and stop and frisk and make it to where people were over-incarcerated. He created the conditions financially that we're in right now by going along to get along and, as Larry Lessig put it, like a pigeon pushing the right buttons to get money. And so when he became vice president, he used the same loophole as Dick Cheney to make deals with the Ukrainians. In the, UK, in the Ukraine, they have militant groups that are neo-Nazi groups. And those groups are being supplied with weapons right now from Israelis. They're being su supplied with Israeli weapons right now. So even as Donald Trump sits there and is a great supporter of Israel and all these different things that are going on, the fact of the matter is that politically, when we provide money to these groups and these politicians and these governments outside of our country, we don't have a say in their politics. The idea is that we're just being a supportive friend. But what is it? what did Dan Arley say? Never pay a friend for a favor because then you just give him a gift instead. Well, we pay our friends for favors, and then we end up with a gift after we help them out in the form of, well, our own version of Antifada. Uh, so it's, we got the American version of Antifada happening right now, Antifada, which is basically what I called them from the jump. <laughs> and it's not a joke anymore. This, this is a thing that was done. It was 
organized by surveillance state operatives. It was a coup. This was a freaking coup that was taken upon a president who they didn't plan to have as president who has pulled us out of those countries and destabilized what those groups, those 400 families, actually wanted. So those people, they didn't care who wins as long as they get their tax breaks, but also they like war and it's profitable. And that's the easiest way to get them into that position, again, is to get in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who don't have a shit, worth a shit record on foreign policy or criminal policies. They're absolutely the worst Democratic candidates we have had, period, ever, I'm pretty sure. And they are definitely going to be worse than whatever happened in the next four years under Trump, which is why the FBI went in so hard, because as William H. Webster said, the bar attorney general and Trump agenda is destabilizing their ability to illegally target and arrest people. They're, it's destabilizing their creating of terrorism that they use to go after terrorists. And sometimes, oopsie-daisy, they accidentally allow terrorism to take place to scare you into voting for more funding for them and to justify the, the funding and, and training and planning that they do in that regard when there are scary enough things that happen without that happening. And in, in this case right now, I couldn't tell you one way or the other what happened in Washington, D.C. I just know that that right there is terrorism, and it may have been facilitated by agent provocateurs, or it could have just been a rogue group of people that are members of Black Lives Matter who are so adamant about getting Trump out of office that they are willing to stab the leader of a group that they think is causing a problem for them who happens to be a Latinx guy married to an African-American woman. So that's the definition of black-on-black -black crime. I don't know what to tell you there. It's, it's absolutely insane. There is no discourse happening there now. They've manufactured this. This is manufacturing consent. This is a thing that has been covered. And as many of the independent journalists that I've listened to don't think that Trump is good for the country, I don't necessarily disagree. But what just happened in Washington, D.C., and what I'm telling you right now in this podcast should give you pause because they manipulated even you. They've even manipulated some of you into believing that Trump is just a bad orange man. And in this case, it couldn't be further from the truth. He might be a, not your favorite person in the world to be president, but he only had four years in. He couldn't cause people to be getting stabbed in the streets over politics in that four-year period. That's impossible. Not without somebody investing in terrorist groups in the same way that we invest in moderate rebels in the Middle East, you know, in places like Syria. So it's really important that you take a minute to really understand this. I mean, it's really important. If you support nonviolent protest movements, if you're a person who is like that and has never been in the military, I am telling you, there were military-level operations and organization that was behind the group of people I saw operating as Black Lives Matter and the Black Bloc in Washington, D.C., that was coordinated stuff that looked military to me. And not all veterans believe in Second Amendment freedom. Not all veterans believe the same way. I'm fine with that. No offense to any of you, but this is why. Because sometimes it doesn't matter if there's a gun or not. They'll just attack you on the streets with a, a bunch of people and some knives. That's the kind of shit that happens in Palestine. That when people get bombed over there, they get mad and then they go and they do that. 
they've created a situation where the Black Lives Matter protesters are as mad as Palestinians at a group of people who have little to no say in anything, no matter how many times Donald Trump says that he doesn't not support them. It doesn't matter. They don't have political power like you do. Clearly, it's not even a fucking contest. And that's a joke that they are thinking that they, they were able going to get away with this shit. And I don't understand why it is that so many Americans are blind to this, but I would be willing to bet that after the Department of Justice and the FBI actually get some credible people investigating this, that this will all come out, that this was absolutely 100% a financial coup paid for by people who probably should never be able to invest in politics ever again and maybe even catch a case over it. So this is the Earning Hope podcast news cycle signing off.